All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback around, uh, underneath a seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip with us to Matthew chapter 25, where we'll be in as we uh, our third week as we continue along in our Finding God on Your iPod series. And so uh, we have spent the last two weeks, this will make our third week, looking at um, various songs, various uh, lyrics and, and poems um, that have, for whatever reason, taken root in our culture, in our society, and then um, we brought those into comparison, into conversation with the scriptures and with the gospel. And so uh, following on Paul's example in Acts 17, where he says, uh, talking to these philosophers and, and poets, he says, as your own poets have said, he takes a song that they're familiar with, and he says, watch how this leads to Christ, watch how this leads to his life and his death and his resurrection. So we uh, did Imagine Dragons two weeks ago. We did uh, Lord uh, Royals last week. I'm told that there's actually a pretty good way to remember the sermon uh, throughout the week because every time you start to, to play the song, it's stuck in your head. Um, this week we are moving on to another uh, pretty popular band. Uh, you're probably familiar with the band, might not be familiar with the song. It's a, a song called Invisible by a band called U2. Uh, so I think most of us are familiar with U2. If there was ever a rock and roll band, it was U2. Okay. If there was ever a rock and roll star, it was Bono. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not. They're working on a new album that's going to come out pretty soon. And on Super Bowl Sunday, they actually released a song. Uh, and so there's a commercial that played for like a minute. And they said, in the next 24 hours, we have free downloads. So go to iTunes, get it for free for 24 hours. And every time you download the song, $1 will be paid by Bank of America to Bono's organization, Red. Uh, which works to end uh, the AIDS uh, epidemic that is uh, still going on in our world. And so, I don't know, just anyone, did anyone download the song on Super Bowl Sunday? Yeah, a couple people downloaded the song. Yeah, it's a good song. I downloaded it. It was free. If you want it now, you got to pay a buck twenty-nine. okay, uh, at the mm-hmm. iTunes store. Um, Invisible uh, by U2. It is a, uh, a song, again, that was created for this album they're about to come out with. Uh, and again, it's kind of was created to raise money and awareness for uh, Bono's organization. I believe that he helped start, which is called Red, uh, which again uh, does various work to try to help uh, stem the tide of AIDS and and kind of win the war on AIDS. Um, it seems like it's been a while since we heard much about it, but it's still an issue out there. Uh, and so, uh, according apparently, three million dollars got raised on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, so three million people downloaded it. It's a good song. So we have a, a video for you to, to watch while we listen to it. The music video itself for Invisible comes out Tuesday. Okay, so if you like the song, you have something to look forward to. Tuesday, February 11th, the actual music video comes out. This is just a couple of clips we put together so you'd have something to watch while we listen to Invisible by YouTube. Came out. Uh, obviously, the song is connected to the issue of AIDS in our world, and so uh, the lyrics, the chorus reads, "I'm more than you know. I'm more than you see here. More than you let me be. I'm more than you know. A body and a soul. You don't see me, but you will. I'm not invisible." Uh, it speaks of this very real tendency we have in our society and in our culture to take people who make us uncomfortable or who confront us with our own morality or who we don't normally kind of get along with or associate with and kind of make them invisible, okay? This is, I think he's pointing out, this is kind of what's happened with the, the AIDS epidemic, okay? Particularly um, when it was kind of in its full swing at the beginning. Now that was before I was old enough to really like pay attention to what was going on in the world. And so I've never actually heard that much or learned that much about the AIDS epidemic. 
until maybe two or three months ago, I watched a documentary on it. And it was shocking. I mean, how many people were dying and how quickly they were dying and how protection and medicine and those kind of things were so polarized among kind of social ethnic status uh, in the world. And then, and then particularly the church's response to it, um, where it was I, I, unfortunately too much of you probably deserve to die. So why would we put money and resources toward helping you out doing this? Uh, kind of a, a condemnation, uh, you get what's coming to you kind of approach to the, the AIDS epidemic. Um, and uh, so, you know, various organizations and things have been started for it. Bono's here singing, right? I'm not invisible. These people aren't invisible. They have a body. They have a soul. Um, at the end, there's that little refrain there that I love where he says, there is no them. There is no them. There's only us. There's only us. Now, you could interpret this to be like kind of a selfish, right? Like him and his band are blocking out the world, and they were kind of rocking at the point of the video, right? And it's like no one else exists. It's just us. I think actually what he's doing is trying to tear down that like dividing line that we often drop, right? We create this us versus them mentality in the world. And so AIDS is their problem. It's not my problem. And he's trying to say, no, 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 it's a human problem. You're in this together, right? Um, I mean, we so often do this. That's, that's their problem. That's their struggle. That's their issue to deal with. He's saying there's no, there's no them versus us here. There's humanity. There's you and I. Um, now, maybe surprisingly, Jesus has a lot to say about these kind of invisible people in our society. These people who have been pushed to the margins. These people who are often avoided, who are often, you, you kind of look the other way, right? We don't want to think about them. We don't want to look at them. We don't want to engage them. We have a hard time showing them compassion and love. Jesus is actually going to put a huge amount of emphasis for his disciples on how we are to treat and how we are to notice and how we are to go out of our way to help and love and be generous to those who we might call other to those we might call invisible, to those who are downtrodden and broken in our world. I mean, I can't think about, so there are a lot of things in the world that make me mad. And, you know, turn on the TV and see this or see that or read this article or read this article. And I get kind of fired up and I come and preach about it, okay? And, and I'm, I'm, as I watched that documentary, I was happy I wasn't around during that time, right? Because that was just, would have just been another one of these things where I'd be like, what is the church doing? What are we doing here? How, how in the world does anyone read the Bible and think that this is an appropriate response? Because this is exactly what Jesus does, right? When he shows up to people in sin and with diseases and about to die, right? He says, ha, sucks to be you, sinner, and then lets them die. No, I mean, he, he goes and loves them, right? He heals them. There's one instance in John 9 where, where the disciples ask the question, is this guy blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? Jesus refuses to even answer the question. He says, that's not what I'm here to do. I want to show you the work of God. And he heals the guy. The woman caught in adultery. He doesn't go, well, you guess this is the law. You're going to be stoned. Should have thought about that before you committed adultery. He says, I don't, I don't forgive you. Or I do forgive you. That's a big twist in the story, right? That's an important part. He says, I do forgive you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus is going to uh, expect his disciples to have the same kind of response to these people in our society. So let's look in Matthew 25. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. Now I want us to go into this passage with an open mind. Okay. Sometimes we come to the Bible and come to text with things that we already believe. Because we do already believe things and things we've already been taught and things of that nature. And, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we don't let Jesus surprise us. We kind of rationalize hard things away really quickly instead of letting them unsettle us a little bit. 
Um, and the rule for me will always be that we should all probably take Jesus a little more seriously than we do right now. So if Jesus said it, I think our first response should not be to rationalize it away and figure out what he really meant, but to go, oh man, what if he really meant that? Like, what would that mean for my life? How would that kind of mess up my worldview? So um, Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus is talking, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people out from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, apparently this is a pretty common thing for farmers, shepherds to do, okay? Um, Goats and sheep in the Middle East, even today, graze together. And they have to be separated at night um, because apparently goats can't keep warm as well. So they have to go to a different kind of enclosure. But it's notoriously hard to separate goats and sheep. It's hard to tell the difference, okay? Uh, If you have been around very long, you know I'm not good at this agricultural farmer stuff, okay? I'm a city boy. I have no idea. I don't know how you can tell the difference between a goat or a sheep, all right? I could have probably taken a quiz. I've been on Jay Leno and told you they're the same thing. Who knows? I don't know. It's something science will never figure out. It's like the, the Higgs particle, right? We will just never know. What the difference is between a goat and a sheep. Um, but Jesus is separating them out here, okay? I mean, this is the scene. It's, it's the scene of kind of like final judgment, kind of D-Day. The king has come back, and he gathers all the nations. It's, it's everybody who's ever lived in front of him. And there's this great kind of divorce. The sheep to the right, the goats to the left. So he, he, keeps, uh, he keeps on, he says in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's the reason they get to come and inherit the kingdom. Verse 35, 4, because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now this is interesting. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And verse 40, the king answers them and says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Now to the goats on his left, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For because I was hungry and you gave me no food, I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and didn't minister to you? And they'll answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, uh, it's important here as we we look at this passage to to think about how this story, how this teaching fits into Matthew's overall gospel, okay? So Matthew structures his gospel very intentionally. There's five big sections of teaching, five discourses. We think Matthew's doing this to mirror the law of Moses. Uh, So Moses goes up on a mountain and gives a law, Jesus goes up on a mountain and gives his sermon on the mount. Moses has to escape a tyrant when he's born. 
uh, Pharaoh. Jesus has to escape a tyrant trying to kill him when he's born. Matthew kind of paints the picture on purpose so that we get the point. Jesus is kind of the new and better Moses. Um, and so just like Moses has five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and I missed numbers right before Deuteronomy. Okay, <laughs> The books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Y'all didn't catch it. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> the five books of Moses, right? In, in Matthew, you got these five big discourses, these five big chunks of teaching. This is what makes Matthew's gospel so different from the others. Is if you want to hear what Jesus is actually saying, Matthew stops takes a break and gives you these long extended discourses, these long teachings from Jesus. This was the most popular gospel in the early church um, for that reason. So if you look at all the documents we have from the early church, uh, the fathers quote from Matthew twice as much as any other gospel. Um, because obviously as disciples, we want to be committed to what our Lord said, to the commands he gave us. Now, this uh, particular passage, the goats and the sheep, called a parable, not really a parable, um, it's, I think it's more straightforward than parable implies. The only really parabolic part of this is the goats and the sheep. Um, but this section here in Matthew 25 comes at the end of the fifth discourse. Okay, The fifth discourse lasts from chapter 24 to 25. This is the very last thing in here. Um, so, so the way that uh, structured Matthew is, this is the last thing you hear from Jesus in terms of a long extended discourse. It ties up pretty nicely with the Sermon on the Mount. It ends this section in 24-25. And then this is the last thing ringing in your ears if you're reading through the book of Matthew. It seems as if Matthew has set up his gospel on purpose so that the disciples will have this kind of seared into their conscience. When they think about what was a priority for Jesus, when they think about what was an important teaching that they had, they remember this last one he really emphasized. That it would be kind of burned into their imagination. I think a large part of being a Christian is retraining our imaginations. So that we look at the world in different ways. So that we think of different possibilities. That we see people in different ways. We've got to kind of, I think we, we need to have our imaginations converted sometimes. We need to have our imaginations become more Christian. Um, more uh, centered on Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father and the kingdom come. Um, if you're anything like me, right, you struggle with anxiety and worry, often your imagination is controlled by something that's probably not very godly, right? It's worst case scenario. It's the, the worst that could happen, the worst inside of you. Um, I think the Spirit comes to, to provide a new imagination. I think Matthew puts this here so that this would be one of those concrete priority things that that drives how the disciples see the world, what it means to follow Christ. Now, there are so many surprising things about this passage, okay? It's this passage of, again, final judgment. Jesus separating out the righteous and the wicked. A pretty common theme throughout the scriptures, okay? One day, Jesus is going to return, and the kingdom's going to be consummated. It's going to be finished. And he's going to take everybody. They're going to stand before the judgment, and they're going to be separated. You might call it the great divorce. Sheep on one side and goats on on the other. What's surprising though, particularly in this passage, is the criteria for which all of humanity, all the nations, Jesus says, is going to be separated. The criteria is not who believed in me. The criteria is not who accepted me into their heart. The criteria is not who went to church, who went to the synagogue, who did these really powerful spiritual miracles, who preached. The criteria is how you treated these kind of poor, downtrodden, broken, the invisible ones. 
That's the criteria. In fact, um, until Jesus gives another revelation here in the passage, there's really no reference to him at all. It's how did you treat, when you saw a naked person, did you put clothes on them? When you saw a hungry person, did you feed them? When you saw a thirsty person, did you give them a drink? When someone was sick, did you visit them? When someone was in prison, did you, did you visit them? You can kind of see kind of maybe three basic needs here of human life. Food, shelter, and, and freedom. I mean, eating and drinking are the building blocks of life, I'm told. I was going to take care of you, someone be concerned for you. Hospitality, welcoming strangers, visiting people in prison who've been socially ostracized and, and shamed and making sure they're taken care of. Having a voice for the voiceless, standing up for those, again, who are invisible. These are the types of people we often make invisible, whether we mean to or not. These are the types of people that we turn our eyes from, that make us feel uncomfortable, that we don't want to necessarily engage with, interact with. That it would be easier for us if we could just forget that they were there, if we could make them, make them invisible, who have problems much different than our problems who we would like to separate out from, from our category. And Jesus says, it's on this basis that I'll consider whether you're a sheep or, or a goat. Now, this is very, very interesting. Um, particularly, I think, because if we were to take a survey of, of Christians, you'd probably find answers that don't look like this when you ask, how is Jesus going to do the separating at the end of time? How will he separate out the righteous versus the wicked? I mean, you'll, I mean do you have the right confession? Right? I mean, did you walk down the aisle and say the prayer? Did you do this? Did you do that? It seems like Jesus is less concerned with whether you accepted him in your heart and more concerned with whether you accepted him in the other, in the person who's naked and hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison. Did you, did you recognize Christ there and take care of them? And, and, and so it's interesting because they, the criteria here is how you treat it. It's this very kind of Social justice right? I mean, it's this kind of um, political, kind of corporate justice. It's, it's kind of, it's your love that's the basis here. It's how you treated other people, particularly, again, those who, who are poor and broken and beating down. Now, while this might seem, seem kind of at odds with certain things we've been taught or thought about um, as Christians, it's actually a pretty consistent theme throughout the scriptures, particularly, again, in the words of Jesus. If you would flip with me to Matthew chapter 7, um, which forms at the end of the first discourse in Matthew. There are actually a lot of similarities between this passage and then Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They both end the same way, with warnings, with a statement about judgment. It seems like Jesus is wrapping things up, Matthew's wrapping things up here. Um, Matthew 7, in verse 21, this is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. You see the same kind of themes occurring. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's a distinction here. Not everyone who says something, not everyone who confesses something, gets to come in. Instead, who gets to come in? The people who do something. The people who do the will of the Father in heaven. On that day, this day of reckoning, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Now, the first thing I'm thinking is that sounds a lot like the will of the Father, right? I mean, this seems like some pretty hardcore people if they're able to like truthfully claim that. Hey, I was casting out demons. Who's doing some stuff in your name? Apparently, this is not the full definition of what Jesus considers the will of his Father. He'll, he'll declare to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You still worked lawlessness. You still did not do the will of my Father. 
Perhaps it's possible to prophesy, cast out demons, and do mighty works without loving. Just maybe a suggestion. Maybe that's a possible possibility. That you could do these kind of spiritual actions that get you fame and, and credit, but really not have this, this love for God and love for neighbor that Jesus commands is the greatest commandment. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Again, there's this distinction between people who hear and do who will survive the judgment day, the storm, versus people who hear and don't do. Um, one more passage. Flip to John chapter 5 with me. John is a book with heavy emphasis on God's love for us, Jesus' acceptance of all faith as the key marker for Christian identity. And even in John, you have statements like this. that suggest when Jesus finally gets around to sorting people out, it's going to be based on what you did, on the kind of actions your life was characterized by. John 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, I think this is talking about the same scene you see here in Matthew 25. There'll be a resurrection, people will come out of the graves, and then there'll be the sorting. The sorting will be between those who do good and those who do evil. Life and death. Reward and punishment. And in Matthew 25, that criteria for doing good versus doing evil is very simple. Very simple. That you feed those who are hungry. That you give drink to those who are thirsty. Did you protect and love and care for the invisible ones in our society? If we flip back to Matthew 25, there are, I think, more surprising things in the passage. So Jesus, he says, this is the criteria, how you treat these people. There are six categories he lists off here. You have those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are strangers, those who are naked, those who are sick, and those who are in prison. I don't think this list is supposed to be exhaustive. Does that make sense? I think it's just illustrative. So I think there are more than just these groups of people that fall into the, the kind of people that we should be caring for and that Jesus will make this decision based off our treatment of. I think really the, the kind of broader category is people who are, are voiceless, powerless, people who get trampled by the system, people who get ignored and pushed to the side and marginalized and become invisible. I think you could, you could kind of expand this out, maybe contextualize it a little bit. Obviously, we've got lots of people who are hungry and still thirsty. We've got strangers. I'm just not sure we have a lot of naked people. Uh, I mean, you could probably walk around for a while trying to fulfill this one and not come out. I mean, unless you bust in someone's house, okay, while they're showering or something like that. In other parts of the world, sure, this is, this is probably something that you can, can help with. Um, but I think we might be off the hook on that one. Um, I was naked and you clothed me. If you come across a naked person, okay, definitely clothe them. Also, maybe call somebody. Uh, 
just because they should they should get checked out. Don't look, okay? It's a fine line between you don't look fully and you give them clothes and you move on. There's more than you needed there, but uh, naked is a category. Sick is a category, and in prison is a category. And Jesus, it's how you treated these people that determines whether you are a sheep or a goat. Now, also surprising here is uh, the the fact that both sheep and goats are surprised that they're sheep and that they're goats. Did you catch that? There are sheep who get included who thought that they might not have gotten included. And there are goats that don't get included who thought that we probably should have been included. This is, again, a theme that you'll find throughout Jesus' message. You saw that in Matthew 7, right? They'll say, Lord, Lord, we were on your team. We did this and this and that. And he said, I don't know you. There will be people, according to Jesus, who are surprised by the verdict he delivers. Who will think they were on the team. And Jesus will say, you weren't on the team. And who would think they weren't on the team. And Jesus will say, you were on the team. And I think it works both ways here. In ways we may not always be able to understand 100%. But they're both surprised this judgment by, by how they treated these people. Now, I think if, if you were raised in church, if you've, you've thought about God and read the scriptures for a while, you're thinking, well, aren't we saved because of Jesus? Aren't we judged on his righteousness? We're forgiven because of his blood. When we're dead, when we're before the throne, our only hope is to plead his blood, to plead his righteousness. I think that's true. I think um, there doesn't have to be a, necessarily a contradiction here. Um, I think what if you took the whole kind of canon of scripture, the kind of logic you work out is... These actions are evidences of someone who's been saved, right? Someone who has had that kind of faith. James says, faith without works is dead. This is the whole, you can say, Lord, Lord, but if you don't do the will of the Father, the Lord, Lord is is empty and meaningless. You might have convinced yourself, and you might have convinced others, but you did not convince the shepherd king who's going to sort out the the sheep and the goats here. Um, There's got to be this evidence of this transformed life. It's, It's Jesus' work on our behalf, forgiving us, dying for our sins, the substitute in our place, absorbing the wrath of God. It's his resurrection for our life. It's the Holy Spirit given to us that allow us to do these things. I mean, this is not us kind of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. But nonetheless, I think Jesus said, this is real people who are really doing these things. Right? I mean, these are actual people who are following Christ making a difference in the world, acting these ways toward other people. And Jesus, I think, has not much room for confessions above actions. You can say, Lord, Lord, but this didn't happen here. Now, perhaps more surprising than that, that's a pretty consistent theme about the Gospels, is that Jesus here identifies himself with the invisible ones. Did you catch that? This is the big punchline. Um, so he says, amen, amen, uh, this truly in the ESV, this is how you know you're getting to the, kind of the point of the passage. He says, I say to you, here's the big thing, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, these my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. He identifies himself with these people who either were treated correctly or weren't treated correctly, who were either seen or who were left invisible. Now there's a big question when we're interpreting this passage. The question is this. Who are these the least of people? Who are the brothers? Who are the brothers and sisters? There are two options. It could be all the needy people in the world. So anyone who's sick, anyone in prison, anyone who's hungry, anyone who's thirsty, anyone who's naked. Or it could be Christians who are needy and naked and hungry and thirsty. And there are good arguments on both sides in this passage. 
Earlier in Matthew, Jesus identifies his brothers as those who do the will of the Father. He says, my true family, my true brothers are my disciples, my followers. That would make sense here, that, that term brothers. There are also good reasons why you'd want to expand this out here uh, in Matthew. The setting seems to be universal. It seems more descriptive of the least of these is not the brothers, but it's the, the conditions of their living, the needy, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty. Jesus seems to constantly be pushing to, to break down the boundaries, not build them up. Um, so even though people who would tell you that this is just talking about the church, right, like church leaders, this is a passage that gets preached a lot, right, you've got to support missionaries, things like that. I think that's true. Even if that's true, though, even if you take that interpretation, everyone would still say, but you should also treat the needy and the hungry and the sick and the thirsty who aren't Christians the same way, right? And this is a truth throughout the scriptures. So either way you slice it, I think you get to the same result, um, which is Christians should um, see someone needy and, and, and meet their needs if possible. And the reason Jesus gives is because he is identified in them. Again, here's another reason um, that you might want to support the brothers being the church, being Christians, because this is something you see elsewhere in scripture. The church is Christ's body. There's this really tight identification between Jesus and his people. Do you remember Paul on the, the road to Damascus when he's converted? He's been killing Christians. And Jesus shows up and says, why have you, you been hurting me? Why have you been persecuting me? And Paul has the same kind of answer. He's surprised. He goes, I, didn't, I wasn't hurting you. What are you talking about? And Jesus goes, he doesn't say this, right? But you can imagine this would be his response, right? As many children and women and men that you killed, you killed me. These are my people. I'm in them. They're in me. There's this close-knit identification. There's this kind of spiritual union between them. Then again, Jesus is um, the brother of mankind. He's taken on human nature. He stands in solidarity with all of uh, humankind, male and female. And then incarnation. Jesus identifies himself so closely, though, with these people. Um, and this really kind of shocking imagery to where if you, if you were to see someone thirsty and walk by them and not help them with thirst, Jesus is going to say, he's going to count that in the ledger with you ignoring him. Saying, I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And he's going to ask you about it. He's going to hold you accountable for it. And this kind of shocking, shocking imagery, shocking identification here. Um, a sacrament is an important word for Christians. And, and Catholics talk about sacraments a lot. Eastern Orthodox people talk about sacraments a lot. Protestants don't talk about sacraments all that much. A sacrament is a place, um, a physical thing, where God's grace is given to you, or somehow mediated to you, where you encounter God in some sort of sense. And people, well, people will debate about how exactly that happens, but everyone can agree, in some sense, that this is a place where we encounter God. So all Christians, Protestants good, agree that the table is a sacrament. Now, we disagree on how it happens, right? The little details of how exactly things are working. But we all agree that in some sense, some true sense, at the table, we experience Christ. Like, in a way, we don't experience listening to a worship song on our, on our core, right? There's something special about communion. It's a sacrament. Um, same with baptism. All Christians everywhere have always agreed going into the water, coming out of the water, is a special means of experiencing God that, that you can't get anywhere else. Somehow, we disagree how it happens, but somehow there's really grace being given to you, being experienced there, being met there. Christ works through that kind of physical action. Um, Protestants usually end with those two. 
Eucharist, communion, and then baptism. Catholics will expand the list a little bit more. So I don't know if you know this actually, but marriage is a sacrament. It's considered a sacrament. It's a place, a relationship, a reality where you can encounter God, where you can receive God's grace. Now you might be thinking, uh, it seems like the opposite. It seems like that's where I encounter Satan, okay, in the the marriage. Um, Obviously I'm not married. Uh, But I've seen some where it seems like maybe that's what was working there. Um, But I've also seen marriages where you can see the opposite, right? Where you can see, because of the way they love each other and forgive each other and have been loved and have been forgiven, that they've experienced God's grace there. They've been transformed. They've had this real experience. I think there's uh, maybe some truth to this idea of seeing marriage as a a sacrament here. Um, What this text is saying, I think, is that uh, the poor, the invisible, are in some sense a sacrament of Christ, are in some sense a way that we experience him, a way that his presence and grace is mediated to us. You might say this, you don't go to the prison to take Christ to those people. You go to the prison to meet Christ at the prison. Does that make sense? You, you don't go and, and get to know the poor people so that you can tell them about Jesus. You go and get to know the poor people because you want to go find Jesus. Because you want to go experience him. This is one of the big seductions, I think, of, of our kind of station in life is we think that it's okay to work for ending poverty without knowing poor people. Or it's okay to work on ending issues that, you know, whatever our pet issues are, abortion, without knowing people who are considering abortion or have had an abortion or need to, to give up a baby for adoption. I think what you're doing there is you're short-circuiting the whole process. Um, the grace is not, I think, necessarily being given to you by making donations online. And I think that's good. I think that's helpful, right? But there's something, meeting that person, being there, there's something that will happen to you that's not going to happen anywhere else. You're, you're experiencing Christ. You're meeting with Christ there. It's this experience with him. You find him there. And Jesus takes this very personal. He says, you, you passed by that person. You, you passed by me. You didn't feed that person. You didn't feed me. Now watch, they're both surprised by this. The goats seem to generally think, right, look, no one ever told us you were in prison. We would have gone to prison. No one told us you were sick. We would have brought you a basket with CDs and all kinds of stuff, okay? No one told us you were hungry. We would have gone to Fogo de Chao and had a feast, okay? We would have emptied out the cabinets for you. No one told you you were thirsty. We would have gotten all kinds of drinks, non-alcoholic drinks for you to drink. Made sure you weren't thirsty anymore. But Jesus wants us to retrain our imaginations and to consider the invisible ones in the same way we might consider Christ. So in the same way, I think most of us, right, if we heard that Jesus was in prison down on 99, we'd probably make it a priority to go see him this week. I mean, I'm pretty sure there'd be nothing more important on your calendar, right? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't cancel on him like four or five times. Hey, Jesus, things just got really busy today. You're going to be there for a while, right? <laughs> so I'll see you on Saturday. <laughs> and I think, I mean, we'd be watching Prison Break. We'd be studying techniques, right? We'd be like, let's bust this thing open. Let's go get him. Let's make, we're going to make sure he's taken care of. We're going to make sure he's, he's comforted, he's company. Or if someone told you Jesus is starving, he's hungry, you say, bring him over. What do, this is not acceptable. I've got cabinets full of stuff. Let's eat. But if Jesus was naked, well, you're probably not my size, but I, well, let's go shopping. I got money. 
Jesus, though, he wants the disciples to train their imaginations to encounter and interact with um, needy, poor, broken, downtrodden people in the same way that they might encounter and interact with Christ. That's the kind of imagination conversion he's looking for in the disciples. This is the last thing he leaves them with in his, his teaching among them. What you did for the least of these, you actually did for me. I think there is this powerful experience with Christ that we, we encounter here. Now, I would want to say that I think this is where we want to talk about virtue. Okay, Talk about the idea that you and I don't become Christians overnight. And we don't become good Christians overnight. And we don't become better disciples of Christ overnight. Uh, it takes a while, right? So, so none of us, I think, are, are perfect on this. I don't know what it is about. It could just be my family, me, the way my mind's wired. I think it might be symptomatic of like the middle class mentality. Um, but when I see people like this, I turn away. It's an instinct inside of me. Uh, if I see someone, you know, who I can tell, right? I've got like a radar. I'm pretty good at it. That person's going to ask me for money. And it's really inconvenient. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to get the money. I don't know who they are. I've got things to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And kind of like, I'm going to go in the other door. Or, or that, she looks like a prostitute. I live in more maybe a ghetto part of town than some of y'all do, so maybe you're like, I've never experienced that. But it's like, I'm not going to walk over in that direction, right? I'm not going to like look at them. We're going we're gonna, to we, do the head jerk, right? It's invisible. We look down. We want to push those people out of our lives. Jesus, though, I think is calling us to, to not do that. I think he's calling us to engage those people in ways that, that might make us uncomfortable, in ways that might um, transform us a little bit. Um, but I think, again, it's not something we'd easily step out of. I think something you practice. That's the virtue. That's where that comes in. A virtue is something you form over time. I'm making small, small choices, and eventually it becomes more and more part of your character. Um, I think there's something where we have to kind of train ourselves to try to start seeing people in this way, to start seeing Christ in these people, um, start treating them as if we were treating Christ, as if we were treating our Lord. Um, notice here in the text, uh, John Chrysostom, uh, who was an early church preacher, first noticed this, and I think it's just a brilliant observation. Um, in verse 36, for instance, Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. And he says this, I was sick and you visited me. Notice that he didn't say this. I was sick and you healed me. He said, I was sick and you visited me. Which one is easier, healing someone or visiting them? Visiting them. Which one is available to all of you right now? With no spiritual jumping through hoops, with no mustering up much more than the courage to get in your car and press on the gas pedal. You visited me. You came and sat by my bed. He says, I was in prison, and you came to me. He doesn't say, I was in prison, and you liberated me. I was in prison, and you freed me. I was in prison, and you went law-abiding citizen and brought the whole government down. He says, no, you just came. You sat behind the glass, and you prayed with me. Made sure I was taken care of. Made sure someone, someone was telling you that, that they knew you were alive that you existed, that they loved you, that they'd take care of you. It's his really small steps. Jesus, in a sense, is leveling the playing field big time by not making the criteria of preaching and healing and casting out demons. I mean, this is the every man's game. This is lay ministry. This is, give someone a drink. 
feed them. I mean, this is kind of so simple, it's good news. This is the criteria? Okay. I mean, we, we can get into the car and go to the hospital. We can get into the car and go to the prison. We can feed people. We can clothe them. We can give them something to drink. It's these small works, I think, to get us uh, to where we're supposed to be. Um, there was a couple months ago, maybe three or four months ago, where I was uh, grocery shopping. And because of the schedule that I have, a lot of times I'll leave the apartment very early in the morning and I'll get back pretty late at night. And so I do a lot of my shopping at night um, with the uh, kind of the riffraff of the world, if you will. So if you ever need to know when a store closes, I know all of them. I know all the closing times, okay? So I'm the guy at Kroger at like 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, okay, with all the kind of weird people in the world again, all the night crawlers. Uh, I used to have a shirt that said, uh, so there's a guy who's real big on helping the poor, a Christian, and he started this movement called Adopt Jesus, the idea was when you see a homeless person, you should, you should, you know, realize you're seeing Jesus there. And that as much as you do for that person, you're doing for Jesus himself. Um, so you'd be like, this is your chance. Adopt a Jesus. Every time you, you there's Jesus all over the place, you can go adopt them. Well, I bought a shirt from his, his website once. It was one of my favorite shirts. And I wore it all the time and then it got holes in it, so I had to stop wearing it and retired it. But it said in big block letters, just a white shirt with black print, can't ignore the poor. And then at the very, very tiny print at the bottom, it said, it's Jesus in disguise. And I was just like wearing the shirt. And so I went to a, a party, of, like a family party, and there were some kind of like gossipy people involved in the family who were there. I don't know. And <laughs> months later, I hear that they're talking about, they're still outraged that I wore that shirt at this party. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, I get that you probably might not, you know, want to help poor people, I guess. I don't know. But that shouldn't be something that like, Makes such an impression in your mind, like how dare he wear a shirt about poor people and rub it in our face while we're eating pizza and having a party. And what had happened is they had misread the shirt and thought it said "can't ignore the poop." <laughs> Couldn't read the R there, right? And I was like, seriously? So it was probably a good thing the shirt got retired. Okay, I have, now I go back in, in time and I'm like, I wonder who else? Like if it was folded over or like what was going on? So maybe, who knows, it's 1.30 at Kroger, and other people are like, who's the guy in the poop shirt? What's, it's too late to be shopping. So I'm in Kroger, and I show up. It's been a long day. I'm kind of frustrated. I'm not in the best mood in the world. Uh, it happens to me maybe once every five years or so. Uh, I just happened to maybe not have prayed that day, not have spent serious time with Christ. Again, I know it's hard, such a holy person like myself, but put your disbelief aside and, and, and maybe try to get into to the story here. So I, I go to Kroger. Now there's this, this little like lobby area, and there's this woman, I can tell, looking, for the, looking at the gift cards. And I can tell she's very disheveled, looks upset. You know, not great things have happened to her. If I had to guess, if I had to, like, Dr. House psychoanalyze her. So, I, of course, I'm identifying. I'm, like, head down, walk in. I need to get my stuff, okay? So I came out with my stuff a few minutes later, and she was just kind of standing there, kind of, like, looking around, helpless, no longer looking at the cards. And I kind of, like, made an assessment of the area, and I was like, oh, no, I'm the only person coming out at this time, right? And I'm like, gosh, I think she's going to approach me. So I'm walking out. Sure enough, she comes over, and she approaches me. And, uh... Starts talking, seems very respectful, kind of professional, put together. She's like, sir, I, I, I'm so sorry to interrupt your night if you have a couple moments. She starts telling me her story. And apparently, she had moved down to Houston with a boyfriend of hers, uh, and he had started abusing her. And so she had ran away that night. And But she had no cell phone or no cars or anything like that. She had family up in Dallas, I think. And she just needed to call someone. She said, someone will come pick me up. 
I just have no way to contact anyone right now. So she was looking for a phone card. She's like, I just need $10. There's a $10 phone card over there. Um, again, at this point, I turn into super holy pastor man. Actually, no, I'm like, I really need to get home, okay? I've got a 20 in my back pocket. And so I kind of interrupt her life story. I'm like, look, I got a 20, so you can, here's the 20. You can get the card, get something else you need, right? And she was kind of breaking down at this point, crying, telling me her life story. And again, I wish I could say I'm feeling so sympathetic at this moment, right? And I'm like, come, you know, spend the night at my neighbor's apartment or, you know, whatever. But I'm like, I just go, I want to get home. I can't even think right now. You know, let me give some cash. And people are walking by, and she's crying hysterically, and I'm kind of like, I didn't do this. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Just trying to not ignore the poop. <laughs> and then, so I, I, I had the 20 bucks, and, and that's something I try to do. If I have cash, people ask me for cash. I'll try to give them what I have. Um, I don't need it. I've got enough. Uh, and so... You thought you saw someone break down until I gave her a $20 bill, right? And then it's like hysterics going crazy. And she gives me this big bear hug and we pray and I go off. And again, I wish I could say it was a more dramatic moment for me than it was. I mean, it really was kind of like a, I'm glad I can help you, but I really, like, I'm about to die here. Like, I'm about to pass out. So here's the money and, you know, God bless you and, and I hope the best for you. And I can help you, but I've got to go here. And uh, so I get home. I'm laying down ready to pass out. It's, I mean, it's over to me. Uh, and I can't sleep, and I can't sleep, and I can't sleep, which is unusual for me. A couple hours later, I can't sleep, so I kind of sit up, and I'm, I'm flipping through my Bible, and I flip to Matthew 25, and forgotten it was there, was not looking for anything like that, and read through this passage, and just started to kind of like, be like, oh my gosh, right, this is serious, and kind of like rerunning through that, and rerunning through like, you know, maybe according to this passage, that was Jesus standing there, needing a calling card, and wondering if the pastor was going to stop and give him some money to buy a calling card to get a ride out of town. And then thinking, there's a real chance I would have walked by him. I've no, I've done it before, right? There's, a, there's just a real chance. There's Jesus one day will go, hey, what happened that what happened that day, right? I know you're having a tough day. Did you see me there crying? Did you see me there starving, thirsty, naked? Hey, I was in prison for years, and, and no one ever even, not even my family came and visited me. Where were you? What were you doing? We said, well, you weren't, what? You were in prison? Said, Didn't you realize all these people who are invisible to you in the world, these are, what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. I'm identifying with them. I'm in solidarity with these people. I think it's easy, but I think it's something we, we got to start working on training ourselves to think like, reconverting our imaginations, if you will. So that when we see those people, we think we're interacting with Christ. And so that when we, when we ignore those opportunities, we're not going to be perfect, but when we ignore opportunities like that, that, that we can kind of go back and go, maybe I was wrong for doing that. Maybe, what if there's a chance I walked by Jesus there? I need to repent of that. I need to go to him in prayer. I need to, to look out for the next opportunity there. Often in life, it's easy to ignore people. It's easy to make them invisible. I think Jesus calls for us to, to, to see them, to recognize their body and a soul. There is no them. There's only us. And Christians are called to love, love God and love their neighbor, love them as they, they would love themselves. I know we're busy. I know it's, not, it's never convenient. But Jesus is going to say, I think one day, you got to be scheduled that day. 
Got a whole lot on your plate. Can help me out. Can eat with me. Again, I think you can expand this. I think there are other situations in life where you see invisible people. I think the work Elijah Rising does is one of these places. I think for some of us, we didn't even know this was happening, right? Until it started getting brought to our attention by, by Elijah Rising. We had no idea the scope or the magnitude. Maybe we had thought, you know, it was just a small problem worlds away. And these are real people really being sold into the trafficking right under our noses. But it's easier to ignore them. It's easier to, to make sure they're invisible. It's not them, though. It's us. And then I think you can even hear Jesus' voice in the song. So you hear the voice of, I think, the, the, the downtrodden. I'm not invisible. I'm here. And then you think you hear Jesus' voice. You might not see me, but I'm here. I'm not invisible. You might not know this right now, but, but when you're looking at these people, you're looking at me. When you're treating these people a certain way, you're treating me a certain way. <coughs> so I think this is one of the challenges for us as disciples. Um, Jesus, I think, is constantly going to be doing this, kind of pushing us past our comfort levels, pushing us past what, what we are comfortable with, what we think we're equipped to do. Um, and I think we've got we've to take him at his word. And we've got to read passages like this and go, I need to take small but real steps toward loving these people better and toward making sure I might never be in that situation where I thought I was on the team. And he just goes, but, but you just kind of passed me up every time you had the opportunity. You just kind of never, you just kind of never helped me out. Christ, God, seems to side with these kind of people. In fact, I mean, this is the good news, right? We were this kind of people. Spiritually. We were in sin. We were dead. We were under God's wrath. And it would have been really easy for God to make us invisible. To walk by us. To go, well, that's your problem. That's not our problem. Instead, though, Christ comes and enters into our situation. Makes himself one with us. Experiences, suffers for us. And the more we worship him, the more we follow him, the more... We're supposed to be transformed into that type of person. Will you pray with me?